He needs to keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burn the flag. Race relations. It tells me I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. What's up, everybody? Buck Sexton with America Now begins. Number is 844-900-2825. Great to have you here. Always an honor and a pleasure. So you had two things happening today. You had what some of the media was talking about, which really didn't have much to do with anything. It wasn't news. It was manufactured news. Not sure we could call it fake news, but it was not based on important events of the day. It was just a question of how much they could focus our attention on it. And that has to do with the Trump administration. Is it anti-Semitic? Oh, that's the question they want us all to answer. That's what they are posing now. And meanwhile, the other side, you have the mounting, uh, the growing fight over immigration, which is setting up to be to be quite a showdown, I think, uh, particularly for sanctuary cities in light of some other news stories. But let's let's first dispense with the anti-Trump narrative of the day, anti-Semitism. Um, you had a, a CNN panel, and we're going to talk a bit more about CNN later in the hour. Just by way of background, yeah, most people know of me as being former CIA, but I was at CNN as a right-wing commentator. They always made sure that that was how I was introduced, too, whenever I talked about politics, or conservative political commentator. They bring on conservative political commentator Buck Sexton, and then political analyst Van Jones. You know, why why am I... Why do I get labeled something and he just gets to be, oh, it's because, you know, we, Buck, secretly, we hate you. Okay, good. I'm glad we've established that. Uh, but there is the CNN, CNN panels always worth popping in and checking those out once in a while, just to, you know, throw it on the TV screen. I know some of you are, are saying to yourselves, no way, but it's fun to turn it on and see what the left thinks the country wants to see, or at least that the Democrats that are watching want to see. And so you had these discussions of anti-Semitism going on. Uh, Here is one of those clashes. Uh, Play the CNN panel clip, please. Harlan, I want to ask you about this because I know that you're you're hearing some of the criticism of Donald Trump, and I imagine people who support him like you may say, okay, he gets criticized for not saying this, and then he's criticized for not saying it soon enough. But yes, uh, I'm going that to ask you happened. that question because 67 bomb scares since the beginning of January, uh, a Jewish cemetery desecrated yesterday. Why do you think that President Trump spoke out now, and why do you think it did take him so long to do so? Okay, hold on. Where do you, I, I don't even... Uh, Harlan's a good guy. I like Harlan, but I'm going to answer for Harlan here. First of all, it, it's been a, a day or two at this point when that clip came out, uh, when Trump hadn't yet said anything on the issue that was at least satisfying to the, to the Democrats and the criticism here. Uh, but they go even further, and they want to know why Trump won't speak out against against anti-Semitism. And then it turns very quickly into, well, he must be anti-Semitic. They have people who are going on TV and saying that Trump is an anti-Semite. You have Anna Navarro, whom I I don't like to be mean. I don't know why anyone listens to this woman for any reason ever under any circumstances. I've never heard her say anything that was worthwhile or interesting in my entire life, including when I was working at CNN. And she's not very nice. 
So you put all that together and I don't get it. Someone else could explain that one to me. You can listen to yourself on TV. I've never heard some. This is this is somebody who went on the Bill Maher show and uh, was talking about how, unlike, you know, unlike the unlike George Bush, Donald Trump was a was a trust fund baby who got everywhere because of his last name. And everyone's jaws sort of hit the ground. Really? Okay. Interesting. You don't think that Bush had an important advantage with his last name? George W. Bush, really? Okay, interesting point there. Uh, Top flight political analyst. Okay, Uh, she was on and she says explicitly that Trump is, well, connected to this anti-Semitism. Please play it. I also think his attacks on the media are feeding into these anti-Semitic feelings. He appealed to some of those people in his base and he doesn't want to mess with that. He doesn't want to mess with that support from the anti-Semites that did support him. He wants to keep that support. When he is talking against the media, when we all remember during his rallies, people shouting, Jew SA, Jew SA, and, you know, looking at the media. And, you know, I think one thing has to do with the other. I think there is a correlation between his attacks on the media and a lot of this anti-Semitic feeling. I don't, I don't remember that from any of the rallies. That may have happened, but I don't remember that from any of the rallies. There were a lot of rallies. Um, but she's saying that he's an anti-Semite. Now, she goes on TV as a Republican strategist or something. Don't know who she's ever strategized for. And I mean that. I don't know who. Maybe there is someone who she's uh, worked on a campaign for successfully. I have no idea. Um, but I just know that as a political commentator, she is among among the least insightful. So in that sense, she's unique. She's among the least insightful people I've heard on TV talking about politics. Okay. And she's saying he's an anti-Semite. Or, or that he has ties, to, he has a, a fondness for, a soft spot for the anti-Semites that voted for him. And then you get Trump coming out and saying that, first of all, he dec- decries all of this, it's terrible. You've got uh, Vice President Pence at a uh, at a, at the Jewish cemetery. Uh, we can actually play. We have P- Pence spoke about this. He condemned this himself. Please play that audio. On Monday morning, America discovered that nearly 200 tombstones were toppled in a nearby Jewish grave. Speaking just yesterday, President Trump called this a horrible and painful act. And so it was. That, along with other recent threats to Jewish community centers around the country, he declared it all a sad reminder of the work that still must be done to root out hate and prejudice and evil. We condemn this vile act of vandalism and those who perpetrated in the strongest possible terms. Okay, condemned in the strongest possible terms. This is the vice president of the United States. I'm just wondering, do you think that there were any news stories run about how, oh, Trump really has thoroughly condemned this now. We can stop. No, because it served its purpose. They saw an opening. Something bad happened. There were these uh, desecrations in a cemetery, and the president of the United States did not come out right away to the satisfaction. I believe he said something about it, but it wasn't to the satisfaction of the left. There was someone else who went on TV at CNN from, I forget, not maybe, I don't think it was the Anti-Defamation League. It was an organization that deals with defamation and anti-Semitism. And he was also just saying that, pre- uh, that President Trump is an anti-Semite. And you have people pointing out, including, I thought, uh, Kaylee McEnany, who did a very admirable job of making this point, despite the man who was incredibly rude to her, um, that you have the president's daughter as a convert to Judaism, one of his daughters, a convert to Judaism. His son-in-law is uh, Orthodox, a member of the Orthodox, uh, he's Orthodox Jewish. So 
but he, he's he's hateful towards Jews. He's anti-Semitic. There is no person who knows Donald Trump who grew up around him in New York City, had interactions with him, has worked with him. No person thinks that Donald Trump is an anti-Semite. That's been a main news story for the last two days. And they're giving platforms to people who are coming out and saying that Donald Trump is an anti-Semite. I, I just want to know, was, was CNN uh, giving platforms to people that were saying the most outlandish and the worst things imaginable about Barack Obama when he came into office? I don't even think you could have gotten on CNN in the first month or even the first year. I don't know, maybe ever, who knows, but certainly not in the first month of the Obama presidency. Pointing out that he palled around with Bill Ayers and that Jeremiah Wright, who was the reverend of the church Obama attended for 20 years, said things that any normal person would hear and say, I don't want to be in this church. But I don't think you would have gotten on. You certainly would have been elevated and given a chance to run around making accusations without any proof. But see, this is how they play the game. And that's why I wanted to start off with this. And I know there's a part of me that says, Buck, no, focus on the policy. Don't get all wound up into the attacks but you see, this is just the latest, you know, next week it'll be some story about sexism and they'll tie it to Donald Trump. You know, the, the day before it was the, the downfall of Milo Yiannopoulos and how Milo and Trump are the same person, basically. This was in major newspapers and publications, so-called intellectuals making this comparison. But here's what they don't want you to think about. Now, we, we've dealt with this. I don't think anybody who's being honest, believes that Donald Trump is an anti-Semite. I don't even believe the people leveling the charge think he's an anti-Semite. They just know that it's good for their brand, right? It's good because they're just doing whatever they can to hurt Donald Trump. And even if it forces them to be immoral, to be liars, they don't care because the ends justify the means. If it hurts Donald Trump, it's good in their eyes, even if it's defamatory, even if it's based in nothing. That's what they're doing. They view this as an information warfare situation and so whatever they can do is what they will do to bring down this presidency what they don't want you to talk about happened in denver recently what they don't want you to understand to know to be discussing with your families and certainly not to be pressuring your congressman or woman on has to do with the immigration policies that have been addressed on this show yesterday we talked about them but have been rolled out by the department of homeland security that are the very beginning of a sea change in how immigration enforcement is done in this country. And if we're going to take a case to illustrate why that needs to happen, we don't have to look any farther than Denver, Colorado. A grisly murder, one for which you could very easily point the finger of blame, the finger of responsibility, at the authorities in Denver. I'll give you the details of this on the other side of the break. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back, Team Buck. So Denver is the story the media doesn't want to talk to you about. They'd rather have the Trump administration and all of its uh, surrogates playing defense on anti-Semitism charges, as though that's a meaningful accusation against Donald Trump and his top advisors. Uh, I've even seen people on TV saying, well, the fact that his daughter converted to Judaism and his son-in-law is Jewish has nothing to do with this discussion. I I think it does, actually. I I think that that's that's now you're you're going off into Looney Tunes land. If you're going to tell me that when someone has uh, members of the Jewish faith in their own immediate family, that 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 doesn't mean anything when you're going to talk about how they're anti-Semitic. It's just it's mind boggling. But let's understand the purpose of it is that we spend time 
uh, talking about it, that the administration has to defend it, and that there's less oxygen in the room, there's less space in the major newspapers and the different segments on cable news and the 30-minute the news shows that they do on the broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, quote, news shows. Um, they don't want you talking about what happened in Denver. Let me tell you a bit about it, because this ties directly into so much of the debate we're hearing right now over illegal immigration and what the administration plans to do about it. In Denver, uh, the Denver Sheriff Department has had to defend its release of an illegal immigrant uh, after he posted bond because, well, he was arrested for murder weeks later. Denver claims it had no authority to hold him. uh, Aver Valles, 19, was a Mexican national. He was released from Denver jail in late December. And last week he was charged in the state for, uh, along with another defendant, for the murder and robbery of a man at a rail station. So Denver had this individual who was an illegal immigrant in their custody, and they claimed they had no authority to hold him. That's not true, but they claim they have no authority to hold him because they know right now the heat has been turned up. Right now it would look really bad. People would be upset. There's an understanding that the American people have That someone is dead, a U.S. citizen is dead, an American is dead because of the decision of the Sheriff's Department in Denver. It is not the case that states uh, lack sufficient police power. I mean, we could break this down into the constitutional argument. We could talk about it just as a security argument. There are uh, any number of levels. It It is not the case that they lack authority to arrest for what could what are federal crimes. This happens all the time. You know, local police often are involved in arrests for what are, in fact, federal crimes or that are chargeable under the federal code. And under their police powers, they have the ability to do that. So when Denver says that they won't even hold someone who's in the country illegally for federal law enforcement to pick him up, this is the request for a detainer. And sanctuary cities decide that they're not going to be they're not going to be helpful to federal immigration authorities they will not hold somebody who is in their custody not that the, this is, it's never the case that the federal government is saying okay law enforcement you just have to go door to door and find people who are in the country illegally this only applies to individuals who find themselves in the hands of law enforcement on an unrelated matter to immigration and then their status their illegal status in this country becomes clear and they can deal with it. And they're supposed to pass that information to the federal government. And then they can hold the person until the federal government comes and picks him up. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement deals with that case. So these are this is already a, a pre-selected group. These are people who are in the hands of law enforcement unrelated to their immigration status and sanctuary cities decide that they will let somebody go because they don't want to be a part of this. They think that federal immigration law is icky and gross. They refuse to terrify communities into the shadows by enforcing the law. Now, when law enforcement agencies, local, and you look at also local politicians, mayors, city councils, decide that federal law doesn't apply in their jurisdictions, we have a big problem. 
And when someone is killed because, as we saw with Kate Steinle in San Francisco, that individual had been deported, I believe, five times and was able to get back into the country. And San Francisco had him. He was a convicted felon and they let him out and they would not hold him. San Francisco is one of the most ardent sanctuary cities. And a woman was dead because of it, Kate Steinle. And all of a sudden, the country spent a few moments looking at the immigration question a bit differently. Now we're back in the same place. Uh, A man is dead because of what the Denver Sheriff's Department decided to do, because the Denver Sheriff's Department is picking and choosing which, which laws it will enforce and refuses refuses to be helpful to the federal government when the federal government asks for it. Remember, these are this is from one law enforcement agency to another. Imagine for a second if a state decided that it was not going to honor extradition requests from another state. For sta- for this is now for violations of state law. You know, if you do something in Alabama and then you think, well, I'm just going to run to Missouri and they'll never catch me, you have uh you you are mistaken. <laughs> Missouri will send you back to Alabama at Alabama's request. This is true of states all across the country. This notion that sanctuary cities are this harmless and, in fact, ethical, moral decision made by these cities is complete nonsense. It adds to the culture of lawlessness around immigration in this country, and people lose their lives because of it. Very hard to make the case that if accused murderer alleged murderer, uh, Aver uh, Valles, uh, was very hard to make the case that if he had been deported once he was in custody weeks before this murder occurred, that this individual who was murdered would not be alive. Very hard for any government official to make that case. They have blood on their hands. That's not an overstatement. And it also signifies, it also shows us, this is emblematic of a much more widespread attitude among authorities in sanctuary cities across the country, particularly the sanctuary cities that are overrun with illegal populations that have such political clout now that it's almost impossible locally to oppose them. Only the federal government could step in with enforcement of the law to do anything about this. But their attitude is, we don't care. We're going to defy federal law here because it's in our interest to do so, and because we've also internalized all of this stuff about how we're a nation of immigrants and people don't shouldn't be in the shadows and they're doing the jobs Americans want to. All this propaganda that many of us have internalized, knowingly or not, these sanctuary cities have decided that it's the truth, that this is how they're going to go forward and refuse to help federal immigration authorities. This is a scandal. It's wrong. And the Trump administration... It's going to put a stop to it. There is going to be quite a fight looming uh, ahead here where you have the federal government finally telling these cities, you either play ball and you help us get dangerous illegal aliens off the streets or there will be consequences. That is quite a change from the last administration. We've got more coming up. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Team, I just wanted to finish uh, with a couple more thoughts and and some details about that Denver case, uh, the, the murder 
uh, alleged murder by, well, murder isn't alleged, the murder uh, allegedly committed by Aver Valles, um, and he was specifically requested. Uh, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement said that it asked Denver County to hold him. They asked for a detainer, and they said that he's a known gang member. And in fact, in Colorado's gang database, he is listed as a known gang member. So they let a dangerous gang member out of prison because, good heavens, wouldn't it be so awful if the sheriff's department helped Immigrations and Customs Enforcement take this gang member who's not supposed to be in the United States in the first place and send him back to where he came from? Denver Sheriff's Department made a choice, a political choice. Make no mistake about it. And their citing of the of the, the Constitution is laughable. They are wrong. Otherwise, people would just be able to, oh, well, you know, the, the, you could just have illegals contesting anytime they get picked up by any by any local law enforcement, which it does happen. Oh, you can't hold me. I'm not in your country legally. Don't you know? That means you can't hold me. This is nonsense and it's dangerous. And people are sick of it. And we are also just sick of being lied to. That's why the whole Sweden case had so much resonance. That is why people who, first of all, had to had to sit back and listen to the mockery of Trump for making a point that anybody... I've been to Sweden, I can tell you, this idea of uh, predominantly Muslim immigrant enclaves as uh, nodes of crime and lack of assimilation, and all kinds of problems. This is longstanding, it is understood, it is known, and the Swedish government is lying to the Swedish people and to the rest of the world about how serious the problem is, because what else are they going to say? Yeah, sorry, we, you know, I always think of the Swedish chef, but, you know, yeah, sorry, what, what we, we made a bad move with this whole obsession with multiculturalism and thinking that our country is a giant refugee camp? No, they're not going to say that. Many of them probably refuse to believe it, even though it is literally, in some cases, smacking them in the face. And yet here we are. People in this country realize that we are also being lied to constantly about immigration, about the crimes committed by illegals, how much of a problem illegal immigrant crime uh, causes for, for neighborhoods, for cities across the country. They're just lying to you, and everyone's sick of it, and we want it to stop. And that's why there's support for this. All right, we've got to switch uh, switch gears here for a second. We're joined by James O'Keefe as our guest. He's an award-winning journalist and founder and president of Project Veritas and Project Veritas Action. James, good to talk to you again. Good to be with you. So I'm hearing some rumors, James. I'm hearing some stuff about how you got some videos, and the videos maybe deal with a news organization that I am quite familiar with as a former employee. What what can you tell us? I know you can't tell us everything, but what can you tell us? Yeah, there's there's it's I you know it's it's <laughs> I I I scoop I, I hate to always do this before I release something, but I get bombarded with requests from people. Well, tell tell us. Here's the the gist. We we had a source from um, within CNN come to me and and give me hundreds of hours of secretly recorded uh information within cnn's newsrooms oh i love it and, okay uh, great this is exciting we're gonna releasing this <laughs> we're going to start releasing this tomorrow sort of WikiLeaks style usually what we do is we produce like a five or ten minute video but this time we're going to basically just dump the raw audio because 
I, I, I haven't actually had the time to go through it all. And um, I just got this information this month. I've gone through a lot of it. Uh, some of it, I, I've, I've found some little nuggets, some interesting quotes from, from some people. And I'm, we are putting out a video uh, that's produced, but we're also going to put out the raw material so people can go through it themselves and maybe they'll find something I didn't. And, uh, you know, people say, why are you doing this? I think your audience obviously knows the answer, that the media is is so deeply corrupt. And, and I don't even think they're doing their jobs anymore. I think they're just just obfuscating. So there's definitely a priority of, of Veritas is to target the media and to expose what they actually believe behind closed doors and how they actually work and their flaws and their dirty laundry and their problems and their omissions is, is all things to expose. It's just no one else can do it. Certainly no one in the media can do it because they're afraid of liability and they're afraid of hurting their friends and, and media. So it, it's up to the job of independent people to do it. So that's what we're doing tomorrow. I'd say around 10 a.m. We're going to dump about 100 hours of tape on our website. And it's CNNLeaks.com is the redirect. Most of the people that I know who work off camera and media would agree with the statement that if you let your uh, if you let your political leanings be known and they were right of center, if you if you let people know you voted for Trump, for example, and you're a producer or a cameraman or whatever, you have put your career in jeopardy. In fact, that they won't make it clear that that's why, but you will be undermined. You'll be thought of differently because there is a, a secret handshake ethos in these places of, well, we all know we actually hate Republicans, right? And I know this, I know this personally. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even going to the level yet of, of what we're going to see in these videos. But so I know that that's there, James. So that's why I'm fascinated to see and to hear what you have with these videos, specifically at CNN. I mean, I could tell my own stories about what it's like there and how you're set up. I would joke around with friends. I'd say, this is how this segment's going to go. This is how they're going to try to undermine me or some other right-wing person. And they, they treat us like, you know, uh, like we're some sort of zoo animal. I mean, they, they put you up there, you get yelled at, <laughs> you get the you get the anchor cutting you off. And, you know, that that's, now that's the on-camera stuff. But even off-camera, it's really bad. Can you give us a little bit, and again, I know, I'm kind of asking you to get ahead of, get ahead of your own scoop yeah. here but but can you give us a little bit of a sense of what sorts of things if you want to give us a couple of quotes like a movie trailer i'm just saying james you don't have to but that would be great but at least give us some flavor some sense of what's going to be out there well that's that's tough for, honestly that's tough for me to do i i i one of the things that we, we know from the election we know with trump called cnn fake news and there's a lot of emphasis put on polls. The media uses experts in polls. Well, there's some of that. There's some there's some talk about polls behind the scenes and 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 maybe the the reliance on them and how they're fake and how they're not real. So there's some there's some information like that that I think buttresses the claim that a lot of this news is fake. Um, and there are some people in these in these tapes who who have who actually uh, some of these tapes are 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 uh, you know a couple years old. So there's so many people who are now advanced and higher up within CNN. You know, they're 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 they're, they're top dogs. Since so so, there's some information here. I think people will find useful. And 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 frankly, since I've even announced I'm doing this, I've had another whistleblower come forward work with me. What's happening is that now you're starting to see people within these news organizations are starting to come to me like they go to Julian Assange, for example, and 
that's the future is that we work, you, you know, I, well, you were in the CIA, right? So yep. you know how it works in, in the intelligence community. It's a, it's a similar type of thing where you, you, you try to recruit people on the inside. And that's kind of what we're doing here is, is people are coming to me. I had to build the sources of trust. I had to go meet with them. I had to, you know, I had to kind of convince him to betray his, his organization. Ah, the, and the ideal I can tell you, for as a former CIA officer, James, the ideologically disaffected make the best make the best spies for you on the inside. Right. Those who feel like they have been betrayed or wronged, much better than offering inducements to people of one kind or another. It's better if they if, if they want to settle the score. Whether we're talking about the Soviet Union and actually some of the best uh, best spies that we had inside the Soviet Union, uh, or I'm sure now in this different conflict against media bias and the lies that are spread uh can you tell us will it and i and i know we're, we got to dance around a little because it's going to come out tomorrow and where can people see it um project veritas the, the redirect is cnn leaks cnn leaks.com it's actually trending on twitter um and uh this all started because i was on sean hannity's show and he had me on talking about media ethics and i said oh we have a story come out this week and <laughs> it's on the top of drudge right now and you know, it's amazing how these things get a mind of their own. But going back to your point about recruiting people, that's a that's and, a good show to let it slip on. I mean, there's millions of people listening, yeah. so that's a good that's a good way to do it. it. Is. Go ahead. But going going back to your point about recruiting people, I mean, I, I think I found that um, people are deeply, deeply disaffected within these institutions. There, and that's not just CNN; it's all types of government institutions. And I think we've got to work with these folks to try to see how we can. Sometimes you got to be careful because you don't want to burn the person on the inside. So, and you, you worked in the intelligence community to call them cutouts or ways that we could protect them. And that's one of the things that Veritas is doing is we're trying to protect these people's identities while also trying to get the information. So there's no one else doing it. I mean, the media isn't really doing it. They're just sort of going on TV and talking, sometimes lying. So we're trying to really report what happens behind closed doors. And, I, and the really exciting thing to me is, is even announcing this story, I've already had two whistleblowers come to me, and they right. want to work with me. Well, I mean, because so, CNN, CNN is, and I used to think, and people say, well, Buck, if you're a conservative, why would you go over there? I thought, well, go into the lion's den, but you don't understand. You go into the lion's den, and they tie your arms behind your back, and they tie your legs together. They, they tell you that, you know, they're going to give you a sword and a shield and may the best men win, but they actually tie you up and throw you in the middle and put you on TV. And if you were to get out of those constraints and actually win a couple of rounds, then they just kick you out of the arena for a while. So that's how they play the game over there. But uh, is there anything... I mean, CNN is as left-wing as MSNBC. It just pretends not to be, and that's, that's my assessment. You don't have to share that, but that's what I think. Yeah. Is there anything in these videos... Uh, that would make CNN even maybe take a moment of pause because the whole notion of their gold standard journalistic integrity, well, people might have a different view of it and not just right-wingers. I don't think that, I don't think that's the best material is where they're being like left-wing behind closed doors. I, I don't think that would hurt them. I think that that's to be expected. I think the best material that we can release, and you'll see, I, I think the best material is where ones where they're literally talking about, you know, it, it, ah, this is this is a fake news. This is a fake news, a manufacturing of news expose more than a bias expose. Listen, if I, if I were to get an exec, TV executive on tape just talking about how much he hates Trump, I don't think that's going to surprise anyone. I don't think that's damning. I don't, I don't I don't think that's surprising. I think that's our, our imaginations are even worse than reality there. I think in any any evidence of media people colluding 
to omit things, colluding to say, well, we don't care about the, the reality. We're just going to use this fake poll or whatever the thing. Now that's now that's damning. So I would say that that's the type of the type of um, information and the type of uh, material that we're looking for when we do these types of stories. But again, I would ask your audience, just you know, hundreds of hours of tape that you guys are going to have to mine this because we didn't go through all of it. There's going to be some things that you guys hear that I didn't hear and some things that you think are important that I don't think it's important. It's the first time we've done this type of thing, put out hundreds of hours of raw, but I think that's the way to go here because we want to see how these people operate. All right. Crowdsourcing the hunt for fake news. I like it. James O'Keefe is an award-winning journalist. He's the founder and president of Project Veritas, Project Veritas Action, and tomorrow, CNNLeaks.com, James? That's right, CNNLeaks.com. I'll be on it. I'll check it out. James, great to have you. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. All right, Team Buck, phone lines are open, 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK, B-U-C-K. We'll be right back. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you. Uh, We've got callers calling in left and right. Matt in New Hampshire, you're on the Buck Saxon Show. Welcome. Hi, Buck. Uh, big fan. I just wanted to ask you, so I go to Dartmouth College, and I happen to be Jewish. Um, I Team Buck Campus in the house. Very exciting. Someone on the campus to call in. Thank you, sir. Go ahead. Yes, exactly. You know, we have to deal with the uh, crazy lefties uh, every day here, so it gets tough. But And just today, they're trying to declare Hanover, New Hampshire, a sanctuary town. Nice. When I was at Amherst, they declared in the city council or the town council, because there's like hundreds of people that live in Amherst that aren't college students, that it was a nuclear weapons free zone. I kid you not. So if you just, you know, if you were smuggling plutonium in the environs of Amherst, the city council is going to have words with you. Go ahead. Great. Uh, that's that's hilarious. So I was wondering if you think there's any credibility to the notion that the left uh, media is ratcheting up this, um, you know, accusations of anti-Semitism towards Trump as sort of a smokescreen or to counter the fact that an increasing number of Jews are voting for Republicans and and also to to uh, hide against the fact that, you know, there are all these other things like what you're talking about in Denver or so many other issues that, you know, would seem to give credibility to Trump. Are they using this as as a reason to, um, you know, counter counter these trends? I think the answer is yes on a number on a number of fronts. This is meant to both be a line of attack against the administration to distract from other policy issues and other stories that would feed into discussions of those policy issues like the Denver, uh, the case of the Denver gang member who murdered somebody and or allegedly murdered somebody. And the sheriff's department was like, well, you know, we couldn't hold them. No, actually, they could. Uh, and, and anybody who saw the meeting between Trump and Netanyahu, the prime minister of the Jewish state, right? I mean, anyone who saw that meeting and saw the interactions between those two uh, came out of it saying, well, this is a very different feel and tone and sense uh, of between these two men than what we had with the previous the previous president. It's just there wasn't uh, a warmth between Obama and Netanyahu. That was quite clear. Obama said things that really annoyed Israel and the Jewish state. If you go back into his history, there's plenty of reason to believe that he is uh he holds the uh, Jewish state in some degree of disfavor. This is Obama now. And yet you got people that are saying this stuff about Trump. I, I bet if, you know, the poll you won't see this week is, OK, what do Jews in Israel think about Trump versus Obama? That would be. And let's hear more about anti-Semitism after that. 
I would love to see some polling on whether a majority of Israelis, uh, of Jewish Israelis, which is obviously most Israelis, but not all, um, a majority of them support Trump over Obama as president, or, or prefer, I should say, Trump over Obama as president. I think the answer to that is pretty clear to everybody. What do you think, Matt? I, I definitely agree. I actually think there has been some polling. I was in Israel in December, and from talking to people there, I certainly got that sense that they were very happy that uh, Trump would be becoming president. Uh, they were not fans, uh, very few of them. Even on the left in Israel, the left in Israel were not fans of Hillary, uh, which I think is, is very reflective of the fact that, you know, a majority of Jews uh, in Israel support Trump. And I think an increasing number of Jews here are supporting Trump because they're seeing what the left, uh, they're seeing the left's true colors, which I think have been hidden for a long time but are starting to to show themselves. Yes, well, the, the fondness that the left has for Islamism, for political Islam, the defense that the left makes of Islam and, and, the, and the refusal to talk about any connection to terrorism and terrorist groups, I got to think, if you're an Israeli, you see that and you think to yourself, wow, they're... You know, with friends like these, uh, with, you know, the Democrat Party in America versus going around pretending like jihadism isn't a real thing. The Obama administration refusing to say radical Islamic terror. I mean, Matt in New Hampshire, do me a favor. Tell some of those guys and gals at the, uh, at the Dartmouth Review to listen to the Buck Sexton show, all right? I definitely will. So I'm actually the president of the Dartmouth Review, so I will definitely call There we go. Hey, you know, I'm an Amherst guy. I want to come up and uh, give a speech to the kids at Dartmouth. We'll make some noise. It'll be fun. You let me know. Reach out, reach out to the show here, Matt. Great, great to talk to you, man. Shields high. Thank you for calling in. Um, all right, team, we got a lot more show coming up. You're not going to want to go anywhere. Uh, going to talk to Caitlin Collins from Daily Caller in just a few minutes. Stay with me. The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That, that's why. That's why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton, back with you all now, team. Thank you for joining me here in the Freedom Hut. We've got our friend Caitlin Collins on the line now. She is the Daily Caller's White House reporter. Caitlin, great to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, so you're down there. You're in the belly of the beast in D.C. You're, in fact, sitting in the West Wing now in these press conferences that we talked about last week. Uh, first off, what was the uh, what was the, the takeaway today on Tillerson and DHS Secretary uh, Secretary of State Tillerson and DHS Secretary John Kelly's uh, Mexico City trip. Uh, wh- what are you hearing about that? It was actually pretty interesting because minutes before Sean Spicer came out, Reuters broke the news that Mexico's foreign minister said they would not accept the new immigration policies that were John Kelly put forth yesterday. And so it was really interesting. It's bad timing, I guess, because they're headed down there for the meeting. Uh, but Sean Spicer clarified that he said, no, it's not a cleanup. It's not a cleanup meeting to repair relations between the two countries. He said that we have a great relationship with Mexico right now. But the foreign minister of Mexico said that the meeting was definitely going to be centered around these new immigration policies that were put out yesterday. Oh, I've got to I've got to assume that uh, Mexico is trying to play to its political base here or to to its own domestic internal conversations about all of the issues that now face them vis-a-vis the United States. And they're going to find out, I think, pretty quickly that the leverage that the U.S. government has to get Mexico to uh, follow through on some of these 
policies or even pre-existing agreements in some cases is considerable. I, I don't think the Mexican government is going to be able to put up as much of a fight as they at least want to seem like they will. Uh, and I think that's what the whole response from the government, from the Mexican government that we see in advance of this trip is about. It's it's trying to make it look like they can do a lot here. But at the end of the day, if the Trump administration really exerts pressure, you know, what, what do things look like in Mexico politically if $20 billion of remittances all of a sudden get shut down, get taxed, get looked at by the IRS? That changes the game very quickly. No, you're exactly right. And, you know, who are they to tell us what our immigration policies are going to be and how we enforce them? Um, I do think part of the Part of the problem for them is in those memos, it, you know, specifically laid out when to start construction on the border wall, when to start planning on it, what states were starting it in. And I'm sure that's something that they were very displeased by. Yeah, it's not a good idea, uh, I would think, in a bilateral relationship like the U.S.-Mexico one for them to come out before a, their first major meeting with the Department of Homeland Security chief and secretary of state and say, we're just not going to accept some of these policies. I think they are going to accept some of these policies. And for example, it's already it, it's already U.S. policy. It's already on the books that if a country will not accept deportees, meaning that when we want to deport somebody back to their country of origin of citizenship, uh, and if they won't take them, we can and we are supposed to, in response to that, turn off all visas from that country. Just shut it down. Uh, now, whether we do that or not with Mexico, it's an open question. But that, to me, would be would be the nuclear option if they decide that they're not going to take uh, take people that we're trying to give them. But I know that we're, we're going to see more about this, of course, after the meeting. I'm sure the Trump administration will have some updates on that. There was kind of a funny moment, as I understand it, Caitlin, where... They were asking about whether Trump will watch the uh, Oscars. Actually, let's can we play the play that audio? The Oscars are, are Sunday night. Will the president be watching? Uh, if there's a Meryl Street kind of moment, how do you think he'll react? And why? If this has happened at other award ceremonies, why do you think this happens? What do I think? What happens? <laughs> actresses and actors like Meryl Streep. I, I have no idea. It's a free country. Um, I, I think Hollywood is known for being f rather far to the left um, in its opinions. And uh, i got to be honest with you, I think the president will be hosting the governor's ball that night. Uh, Mrs. Trump looks forward to putting on a phenomenal event. Uh, and the first lady's put a lot of time into this uh, event that's going to occur in welcoming our nation's governors to the Capitol. And I have a feeling that, that that's where the president and the first lady are going to be focused on on Sunday night. And uh, why is the why is the press corps asking Sean Spicer if the president's going to be watching the Oscars and how he'll respond to a, a a hypothetical Meryl Streep moment, Caitlin? I mean, you're sitting right there. Well, it's pretty unusual of those types of questions to get brought up during the briefing. I think that was why it was such a lighthearted moment because everyone was a little thrown off by it. But I guess that's what's going to happen now with Donald Trump as president because he does famously tweet after awards shows. He'll criticize them. He'll compliment certain things that happen. You know, he always offers his two cents. And especially since he's been in the political sphere, they, celebrities have used these awards shows to, you know, let their political opinions be known. And at the Golden Globes earlier this year, Meryl Streep kind of laid into Donald Trump. And she went on this, you know, lengthy rant about him while she was on stage. And the next day, you know, sure enough, at 630 in the morning, Donald Trump tweeted that she was an overrated actress and a Hillary lover and clarified that he didn't mock a disabled reporter like Meryl Streep brought up during her speech. And 
He said it was just more of the dishonest media. So that's why I got brought up today, because people know that Trump does usually have a reaction to things like awards shows and Saturday Night Live and what's going on in Hollywood. But as Sean Spicer said, he won't be tweeting. He won't be watching. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like if he wasn't at the at the governor's, what is the governor's ball, uh, he would be right. watching it and would be offering up his commentary on, on the Oscars. I have to say, just as an aside, I find the Oscars to be so boring and so long, and I, I don't understand why. I, I, somehow we've all, not we've all, but uh, what is it, a, a billion people watch this? Or there's some crazy number of how many people around the world watch the Oscars. Uh, to me, it's this is this is just so this is not good entertainment. I feel like the Oscars just go on no. forever. I don't go to the movies anymore because people ruin them. So I have to wait till everything is on uh, is on on demand or you can watch it on iTunes or Netflix. So I really have no idea. Like, I don't even know what's nominated. Is there anything good nominated? You tell me. I know you're not an entertainment reporter anymore, but I'm sure you're up to speed on this stuff. No, it's actually funny that you bring that up because the Hollywood Reporter did this big sweeping poll ahead of the Oscars on Sunday, and a lot of people could not name one of the movies that are nominated for Best Picture. And they actually did a pretty interesting poll where they surveyed, um, you know, 400 Trump supporters and 400 Hillary Clinton supporters to see if, you know, they liked politically charged speeches during the awards shows or if they turned the TV off when that happened. And not surprisingly, a majority of Trump voters said that they stopped watching the awards shows when celebrities start talking about politics. But only like 19 or 20 percent of Hillary Clinton supporters said the same. And it was pretty funny because they were saying, you know, a lot of Trump voters said they thought the speeches were too political and boring and phony. But people who voted for Hillary Clinton in the election said that they were touching and inspirational and funny. So it's funny to see how those two bases differ, you know, when they're watching something like the Oscars. Yeah, if a major Hollywood actor or director or anybody of of that uh, ilk were to get up on stage and trash Hillary Clinton or trash Elizabeth Warren, or I, I would be so shocked. I don't know. I don't know what I do. I, I might just. I might just pass out. I, I'm not sure I'd be able to handle that because yeah. the expectation is so clear that if someone is going to get political, they're going to go hard left up there because that's what's best for their career obviously uh, exactly. also also want to also want to ask you Caitlin um if you can give me any insights here into when are we going to see the Trump immigration order re-released we got Spicer saying today that there'll be no mass deportations let's play that audio is one of the goals here mass deportation no not at all this isn't look I, I think what we have to get back to is understanding a, a couple things there's a law in place that says, you know, if you're in this country illegally, um, that we have an obligation to make sure that the people who are in this na- in our country are here legally. What the order sets out today is ensures that the million or so people that have been adjudicated already, uh, that there's a uh, that ICE prioritizes, creates a system of prioritization, and make sure that that we walk through that system in a way that protects this country. This is consistent with everything the president has talked about, which is prioritizing uh, the people who are here who represent a threat to public safety or have a criminal record. Uh, and all this does is lay out the exact procedures to make sure that the, that, that subgroup of people who pose a threat to our nation because of a conviction or a violation of public safety or have a criminal record are adjudicated first and foremost. That That's it. Okay, so he's talking about prioritization, but I, I was under the impression that we might see the new I- executive order on travel today. Are you hearing from, from folks down in D.C., and, and you're talking to everybody in the White House and the press corps, are, are they, do they know when this is going to happen? 
Well, it's been changing. You know, a few weeks ago, it was we'd have it early this week. And then on Monday this week, it was like, we'll have it this week. And now a White House official has confirmed that he will not sign it this week. It will not be signed until next week. Next week is what they're saying now. And we can expect that new executive order. And we're not sure why it's taking so long, but we're assuming it's because they want to make sure this one is a little bit tighter and more streamlined than the other one to where it can pass through the courts. However, the administration is also saying they're not going to withdraw their original executive order because they think it can pass through the courts with the language that it has. So it's interesting to see how this is going to play out. We're not really sure, but it definitely keeps getting pushed back further and further. So we might have two simultaneous executive orders that, I mean, one of them has a stay on it, but it has people keep saying, oh, it's been struck down in a court. That's actually, as you know, not true. It just has to go through the court process now, the on-bank hearing in the Ninth Circuit, or go up to the Supreme Court. But that may, they may keep that live in a sense, uh, the order that already has a stay on it, and put forth a new order. And we'd have to see if a judge decides to smack down that new order as well. Oh, this is going to, it's going to get messy. It's going to get interesting. Uh, but, Caitlin, anything else we should be on the lookout for from the White House in the next couple of days? Uh, we've got a lot coming up, but we never know. Honestly, what's the most interesting is that on Friday, Donald Trump is meeting with Ohio Governor John Kasich at the White House. And it should be a pretty interesting meeting. Donald Trump has had, you know, a lot of people that he went up against for the Republican nomination over at the White House, Chris Christie, Marco Rubio. But him and John Kasich have probably feuded the most out of, you know, a lot of them. John Kasich, you know, refused to come to the Republican convention. He didn't endorse Donald Trump and he didn't even vote for him. So it should be a pretty interesting meeting. And they're also arguing over who invited who to the meeting. John Kasich's people are saying that Trump invited him. Trump is saying that Kasich wanted the meeting. It's all over the place. Here's a prediction. After this meeting, it's going to look like Kasich is the one who was who had to bend the knee here. We'll have, we'll have to see. Uh, Caitlin Collins, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. Caitlin Collins is the Daily Caller's White House reporter. You can follow her on Twitter at Caitlin with a K Collins. Caitlin, great to have you. Thanks so much. I got to say, I... I've only interviewed, I interviewed Kasich once, once, and uh, my one word description, surly. That's right, surly. Welcome back, Team Buck. Lines are open, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK, B-U-C-K. Josh in Ohio, W-H-L-O, you are on the Buck Sexton Show. What's up? Hey, man, uh... I'm just calling in. I was, I've been listening throughout the week, and uh, I heard a lot of what you've said about the protest. I want to say I am a Democrat. I did not vote for Trump in the election. But at the same time, I will say this. He is still our president. I don't care if you're a Democrat, a Republican, an Independent. I don't care what you are. man hasn't even been in office two months. Quit beating him down and let him do his job. And maybe we'll actually get something out of it. Now, Josh, you sound like a a reasonable Democrat, and that means that you are about as rare in this country right now, as far as I can see, as a snow leopard in the wild. Uh, You are not not, uh, surrounded by a Democrat party that takes that approach. And I just want to know, why do you think that is? As somebody who didn't vote for Trump, I'm assuming you voted for Hillary, maybe you voted for Bernie in the primary. Um, but I, 
I actually voted Bernie originally, and when he wasn't on the ballot, I voted for Hillary. <laughs> okay, so um, you, you pulled the lever for Hillary, but now here you are. You're listening to the Buck Saxton Show, which means that you have excellent taste and there's hope for your politics, so that's the good news. Uh, but you got to tell me, why is it you think that there are so many, or rather there are so few, Democrats out there who are willing to just take a deep breath and say, OK, let's let's see what the policies are, because making endless noise about it and protesting and saying that Trump is Hitler. In fact, last night on uh, Tucker Carlson tonight uh, on Fox News, I saw a woman who made the claim. I'd never heard this before, so I have to give her credit for creativity and insanity uh, that Pence and Trump were worse than hit worse than Hitler because they also have nuclear weapons and, and well Hitler didn't have those so you hear some pretty crazy stuff out there Josh do, do you think you can convince some of your fellow Democrats to, to take a deep breath to take a chill pill um I actually my wife's a Democrat um most of my family are Democrats and it just happens to come down to what is more important to you is it more important to you to raise a ruckus to try and make everybody think that we're up on top? Or is it more important to you to come together, work together as a country, and try and make our country better? Yeah, our I would think. Service, yeah, I, I, my, my concern right now, Josh, is that I think a lot of Democrats even if Trump does things that are obviously and demonstrably good for the country, let's say that I mean, uh, one that, that comes to mind that's not rabidly partisan is lowering the corporate tax rate. That would have markedly good effects, I believe, on the economy, on economic growth, uh, on on employment. Uh, and and people say, oh, the unemployment rate is so low. Well, when you take into account the huge numbers that have dropped out of the labor force, as well as the labor force participation as a percentage of the working age population in this country. We, we do have problems with uh, with employment right now. They're just masked by the way that we look at the statistics and, and the way that people talk about this. And I think that's obviously for very political reasons. Uh, but but, you know, the corporate tax rate goes down. Great things happen in this country. Let's just assume that happens. My expectation is that most Democrats that I hear that are getting a lot of airtime, whether it's on TV or that are writing in the major newspapers, they're still going to say Trump's Hitler. He's just Hitler with a good uh, Hitler with a good tax policy. That's the point I'm trying to make. Regardless of what you do, he cannot do it alone. He needs support to do anything, really, if you think about it. The president, yes, he has a lot of power, but he still needs support to do anything. If we're not willing to pull together, I don't care if it's a Republican president, Democrat president. To be honest, I don't care if it's Green Party president. If we're not willing to pull together and work together as a cohesive unit, nothing will change. Yeah, well, well, again, Josh, uh, you you have the you have the best interests of the country at heart, and I think, unfortunately, uh, right now, ra uh, rabid partisanship is the order of the day for the Democrat Party, and, and they just they're so stuck in their Trump hatred that nothing else really matters. And even if even if it if it hurts the country, they're they're willing to put us all through that as long as it hurts the Trump administration. The process, Josh from Ohio, great to have you on WHLO. Appreciate it. You know. That's uh, I'd like to hear from it would really restore my faith in the American. Uh, well, not in the American electorate overall, but in, in, in 
the Democrat Party, and I, I'm friends with a lot of Democrats. Um, I live in a completely Democrat-dominated city. I, I like to think that I can have a civil conversation with anybody about anything as long as they're willing to be civil. And I just wish we'd see more Democrats willing to step forward and say, you know, we, we really do need to stop with the Trump is Hitler and Trump is a Kremlin stooge and he's a traitor and all this stuff that's out there. Trump administration is going to make mistakes. And on this show, I'll be very uh, quick to point out when he has made real mistakes and when things have gone badly. Um, I don't think that's ever been a problem. Look at what happened with Republicans and Bush and the Iraq war. A lot of them were very critical and willing to step out and say all kinds of things about the administration when it looked like things were going badly there. Uh, Democrats, it seems to me, they just there's a lust for power that is insatiable. And it means that there's not much honesty when talking about the opposition. And it's it's disheartening, but it's all right. That's why you hang out with me in the Freedom Hut. We all hearten each other. If that's a word, I think that's a word. We'll be right back. Buck is back. Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. All right, team. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Uh, The headline here in the New York Times sets the stage uh, for what is going to be quite a culture war battle. Trump is poised to remove protections on transgender students' rights, the article says. Now, here's some background on this. Uh, The Trump administration has decided, and that was from earlier today, the Trump administration has decided to uh, pull back the guidance, wasn't really legally binding, but it was guidance put out there under the Obama administration from the Department of Education on what should be done for transgender students. And the guidance from DOE, and I believe also from DOJ, I think it came from both, is that transgender students should be allowed to use the bathroom that corresponds to their gender identity, which we are now told, um, this is a, a recent phenomenon or a recent construct, that gender and sex are different things. This is a a new idea. Um, It is now being pushed heavily by the progressive left. I I have a friend who's a conservative columnist who told me that some of the nastiest and most vicious things he's ever received in response to an article he wrote had to do with this issue of transgender rights. And it's people who are not transgender who, who think of themselves as civil rights heroes because they want to make sure that uh, young people, in this case, we're talking about young teenagers, uh, can dis- can make a choice. And it is a choice that is based purely in psychology. There's no, uh, there's no medical basis for this. Certainly they can't choose, I mean, they can't change sex. In fact, the notion of a sex change operation is, is really a false description you have xx chromosomes for male xy i'm sorry xx chromosome for female xy chromosome for male pardon me so that happens when i stray into the science here um but nonetheless it, it holds pretty clear and pretty true and it's obvious to most of us i would think that there are differences between men and women these are these are real differences and the left is absolutely dedicated to eliminating this distinction so obama late in his late in his second term uh, passed this guidance, and it became an issue when 
or it, it came into the forefront of the news cycle when North Carolina passed its bathroom bill that said, no, you have to you actually have to use the bathroom that corresponds to the gender that is on your birth certificate. So North Carolina, as a state, passed this bill that took all the guesswork out of it. And it was no longer a, well, what uh, what gender do I feel like I am? And keep in mind, the Obama administration also was uh, supportive of the proposition that you couldn't even make a separate accommodation for a transgender student. It had to be. It would be discriminatory based on where Obama came down on this issue. It would be discriminatory for a school to set up a a separate, perhaps, you know, individual unisex changing and, and lavatory facility you had to if a 13 year old boy thought that he or, or feels that he is, you know, this is the language you're supposed to use now, even though feeling and thoughts are the same things. Right. This is you think you're a you think you're in the wrong body. This is what gender identity disorder is. Um, and the Obama administration was saying, no, if, if a 13 year old boy th- w- believes he's a girl and wants to use the girls locker room and girls bathroom facilities, uh, he should be able to do so. And anything else, meaning any separate accommodation made, is discriminatory and unacceptable. And the administration even went to the level of threatening to pull back education funds, Department of Education funds, from any school that did not go forward with this federal guidance. Well, that's quite a bit of guidance when you're threatening federal funds to be withdrawn if someone doesn't go through with this. And, and there's there's a lot that, comes into this debate of course now i think first and foremost a lot of people think to themselves do we really we have to have another national conversation on this this is now the the transgender community which i i have to look up i don't know what the size of it is estimated to be in this country but it is definitely a a very small minority uh that's not to say that a very small minority shouldn't have rights and be fully respected it's just here we are once again having a conversation about an issue that affects very few uh, Americans in their day-to-day lives and a tremendous amount of media resources and time and government resources and time will be expended on this issue. Um, and I can tell you, it's actually, uh, I, I have some transgender listeners on radio. Uh, so people who are transgender listen to the show and I'm very pleased that they do. And they think that I am uh, fair in my discussion, uh, my discussions of these issues. A lot of people get very, Fire and brimstone on one side or the other on this. And I, I try to approach this from a cerebral perspective as much as possible and not, not allow this to become an overly emotionalized issue. Um, but, of course, that's what ends up happening. It becomes very, uh, very tense, very fiery, and it becomes a stand in for on the left. Are you a good person? Are you a decent person? Do you care about people? Uh, are are this is this is either virtue signaling if you're on the right looking at this or on the left it's just a manifestation of being a kind and thoughtful person and of course on the right the tendency is to look at this and say men or rather you know boys are boys men are men women are women girls are girls this is bizarre and will lead to very strange consequences so let, let me take it i want to take it into the into the second order effects the consequences of this in a second but first let me also say that the Trump administration, which there's reportedly some dispute now, there has been some dispute between Department of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos and uh, 
Attorney General Jeff Sessions on this issue. Sessions was adamant, no, this goes back to the states. Isn't that interesting, by the way? It's not we're going to tell we're going to tell states that they have to you know, boys, to the boys room, girls, to the girls room. It's we're going to send this back to the states. That's the Sessions position on this. DeVos, who has been while she's hated by the left because she's for school choice. And you got Cory Booker, who is loved by the left and is probably going to run for president recently, even a few years ago, was giving speeches about how great school choice was. But Betsy DeVos hated by the left because of school choice. Now she's education secretary, has to have a protective detail with her. Because of all the lunatics running around, uh, all the progressive activist types who just, you know, so terrified of the notion of Betsy DeVos, a woman who's like a kindly billionaire who wants to help children get into be- have better educations. Oh, horrible. She's also an advocate for gay rights. Uh, at least it's reported quietly. She's been an advocate for gay rights for a long time. And she, it seems, also has sympathy for uh, transgender rights and transgender students based on this reporting. I don't know if it's true. I'm not in the White House, but I can only go on what our White House reporters are passing along to us. And I I think that some of it is suspect, to be sure. But nonetheless, Uh, so that's what's going on on the political side of this. There's a little dispute. And once again, it goes to the overall narrative of a White House in disarray. That's what we're told. White House in disarray. So you've got DeVos at education and sessions at DOJ, the Justice Department, were arguing on this. And finally, it came down that they have agreed that they will pull this guidance, um, they, which is, again, not legally binding, but OK. Then we get to the other part of this, which is I think all of us are very troubled by it. And you probably have your own memories of this. If you weren't bullied yourself, you most likely at some point in school saw bullying and it is it is mean. I mean, the way that 12, 13, 14-year-olds, I feel maybe in particular, but certainly they fall into this category, can just pick on other kids uh, relentlessly, remorselessly, and really uh, with cruelty and malice is is troubling. And it's something that we should all always, in our capacities as parents or teachers or just anybody who can lend a helping hand, you you need to do everything you can and make sure that your kids do everything they can to prevent that kind of stuff. Because it is really, it is damage. It stays with people. You know, I, I know adults who, if you talk to them about bullying that they suffered as as teenagers, they'll they'll tear up still. It, it, is, it is very painful. And I know we all like to think of ourselves as being, you know, solid as a rock and like nothing can shake us now in our adulthood unless, you know, it's a uh, you know, the, the the sad end of a John Wayne movie or the passing of a beloved family pet, you know, no man tears. Um, but, you know, that's that's actually not the case. When you think back to your childhood, I think that there's a lot of pain that people uh, repress when it comes to bullying, even if they didn't suffer it themselves. I, I wasn't bullied, but I saw some bullying. I, I actually will tell you that I, I intervened in some cases of bullying uh, with 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 real effect and impact. So I'm, I'm proud of that. Uh, to stop it. But, you know, the the times when I saw it and I wasn't in a position, maybe I wasn't big and strong enough to stop the person, you know, that that still stays with me. So bullying is terrible. And uh, if a kid is going through the obviously very difficult process of dealing with the belief or the reality or however we want to put it in context of transgenderism, there's no excuse to be mean to somebody. You know, it's no excuse to treat somebody poorly. And we all know that. But I just... 
Because I, I feel like when the left addresses it, it's always, well, you're just, you're leaving these kids high and dry to get bullied, uh, whether they think they're male they're transitioning to female or the other way around. You're, you're going to allow people to be mean to them. And that's that's not the case at all. All the anti-bullying measures and guidance that the federal government has stay in place. This doesn't touch any of that. And that's also, let's be honest, it's it's not the government's job to police bullying, really. It's our job, all of us. Um, but now that now that we've set that table, I, I want to talk about w- what it means when we erase gender as a reality, when all of a sudden male is female and female is male, just dependent upon individual choice. And I, I people can tell me that it's not a choice, but I, I don't you know, when you're, you're going to say that what now this is now we're being told that gender identity disorder is genetic or people are I, I don't. I don't I, you know this is we're on the the fringes of the known scientific literature at that point. But I even we didn't have to get into that. I want to talk about what it means as a matter of policy for these schools. So now we can have people who are biologically male on female sports teams. You brought that up five years ago and you'd be told that's come on. That's not what this is about. You're just making crazy examples to uh, sort to allow the continued bullying of transgender students. No, that is happening. In fact, I remember I've brought up examples in recent years because I've been doing this media thing now for almost six years where I said, you know, what happens when someone decides that they're transgender and now you're going to have a male in a female prison facility? The answer is yes. Now that happens. What happens when someone who's male and says he's transitioning to female wants to compete in the Olympics or or wants to fight in MMA, mixed martial arts? Uh, That buck, that's crazy. That can't happen. Now someone's life is in jeopardy. Because male physiology is different from female physiology. This also has come out now. They've done the most exhaustive study ever of male and female recruits in the Marines. Guess what the study showed? The Pentagon was unhappy with this. That in every category of physical ability and fitness, males dramatically outperformed females in all combat and tactical fields. Surprised anybody? I mean, is is this a surprise to us? But I bring up cases like the MMA because now mixed martial arts, there is a transgender MMA fighter. Well, well, so now we're going to ignore the biological realities of sex because we are all supposed to give way to the gender realities that are a new progressive construct. I don't think so. We're going to hit this in just a few minutes, team. We'll be right back. What do you think about this bathroom bill feud, the transgender student guidance, the administration pulling it back and allowing states to make their own determinations about how schools should uh, go forward on this? Let me know uh, that and anything else we've talked about today. Immigration, you name it. Uh, all the big subjects tonight. 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. So uh, here's, a, here's a story uh, up on Breitbart.com, covered elsewhere as well, uh, from, though this is just from yesterday, or from the last couple of days. This is a story that just broke this week. A North Texas transgender high school wrestler transitioning from female to male won a girls' regional championship when the female opponent uh, forfeited the match over the weekend. Um, so here we have... Uh, someone who is trans. Well, I mean, she's actually at least she's female wrestling against females. I see here. Um, interesting. Well, let me see what the uh, what the concern is here. Oh, uh, he he urged the league to suspend this student. 
uh, Mac begs because begs takes testosterone. That's I was like, wait, well, female wrestling females. Like, why is this getting so much attention? Well, she's taking testosterone, which is a performance enhancer. It adds muscle mass. That's that's what happens when you do this. Um, and so this is, uh, in, in a sense, like taking a human growth hormone or a steroid. So that's this is a slightly different case than what I was expecting when I saw this pop up on social media. Uh, just I just saw this a couple minutes ago. Um, but here you have it. Uh, somebody who's now transitioning and taking what is a very effective performance enhancing drug because of, again, transitioning uh, a transgender student. This is a 17 year old who's taking testosterone to go from female or you can never really go from. That's actually not scientifically possible, by the way. Even even the scientists who are and the, the doctors who will say use the pronoun that the person prefers, not the pronoun of, of their sex, use the pronoun of their gender identity. So even the doctors that they'll put on TV and the psychotherapists and others who will take that position will not tell you that you can change gender because you can't. That's not actually possible, period, full stop. Um, but so you have issues like this that come up. But then there's... Uh, then there's Fallon Fox, who is this MMA, openly transgender MMA athlete. And you can read these pieces about how uh, this individual is discriminated against. Well, okay. I mean, now you've got somebody who's biologically male in a bare knuckle brawl. I know MMA is, these are elite athletes, that are, but this is a fight in a fight with a female. With a biological female, but people are are making that they're making that concession. Even they're putting women in real harm because this is how crazy it gets with progressives. Now, I guess they want to believe that male and female physiology aren't different and that men don't tend to have uh, different uh, musculature uh, because look, a lot of this comes down to chemistry. A lot of our builds as individuals comes down to genetics and the chemistry that comes from genetics. That's how. We are physically defined, but the left throws all this stuff out because the, the, they must bow at the altar of political correctness, and they've run out of great civil rights crusades at this point, at least in a legal sense. There's not, there's not many, there aren't many laws that are really seeking to have changed here. Uh, gay marriage now because the Supreme Court is the law of the land. You've got people like Betsy DeVos in the administration who are supportive of gay marriage. And here's what's really interesting. Donald Trump is supportive of gay marriage. Donald Trump at this point in his presidency is more pro-gay marriage than Obama was until his, what, second term? But Trump gets no credit for that whatsoever. People say, oh, Buck, that's because the law has changed. Yeah, but people are treating him like he's an anti- an anti-gay president. I've even heard members of the gay community say, oh, he's so anti-gay. He's been very pro-gay in his statements on the campaign trail, pro-gay marriage. Uh, but transgender rights, this is where this is now the wedge between left and right. This is where they're going to try to uh, pull us apart and engage in all kinds of social engineering and virtue signaling and everything else. But here's the real basic truth that the left can't escape. There are differences, biological differences between male and female. And you know what? You can't change them. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. 
Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Something that we do here and we'll be doing more often going forward are deep dives into national security issues. Uh, As I've told you before, those of you who are, are new to listening to me on the radio, I'm a former CIA officer. I served in Iraq and Afghanistan with the agency. Uh, also worked for the NYPD Intelligence Division for Counterterrorism. Uh, and so I also uh, I have some personal experience with these issues, and I know who the best analysts on the various uh, theaters and on, on these different national security issues are. And uh, one of them is joining us now, and he's a friend of mine in addition. So you can take that as either good or bad judgment, depending on what you think. Uh, But Sean Parnell joins us now. He's a former U.S. Army Airborne Ranger. He served in the 10th Mountain Division for six years. He received two Bronze Stars, one for Valor and the Purple Heart. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of Outlaw Platoon, Heroes, Renegades, Infidels, and the Brotherhood of War in Afghanistan. Sean Parnell, great to have you, sir. Buck, it is, uh, it's awesome to be on your new show, and, and that intro, I think, makes me sound a lot smarter than I am, and I don't think I'm smarter than you on this stuff, but a uh, few people are, but it, I'll tell you what, man, it's great to be back in the Freedom Hut with you. <laughs> Thank you, man. Well, it's not, the, it's not the same without you, buddy, so I appreciate you, you being here with us. So let's, let's get into this a little bit. Uh, you've got a, a, the U.S. commander in Afghanistan recently, and I was shocked at how little attention this got i mean it was on the fox news website for a little bit as the main story on a friday afternoon but then it faded away quickly and you've got the u.s commander saying that if we don't send more troops into afghanistan we're not going to be able to break the stalemate that's currently going on in that country now sean i think stalemate may be a a generous way to put it the taliban is in control of roughly a third of afghanistan right now which I don't think many Americans know. We're down to a little over 8,000 troops from a high of over 100,000, and I believe it was 2011. Uh, This war has been going on since 2001. We still have troops there, but I think there's a sense that we're almost done, and this general, who's the commander of U.S. troops in Afghanistan, was saying, saying, oh, no, we probably have to send more troops. What do you think is going on here? Well, general, first of all, the general's name is John Nicholson. He was my brigade commander in 2006 uh, when we were in RC East and Regional Command East in Afghanistan. And there is not a single dude out there that is better and more fit for the job than him. I think he is one of the smartest, smartest strategic level officers that we have. And what, you know, so what he's really doing, and I'm, I'm a big fan of it, is switching from a counterinsurgency strategy back to the original strategy that we had in Afghanistan in 2006-2007 and use it to great effect uh, in, in its counter-terror strategy. But to address your point about stalemate, yes, yeah, stalemate is, is a political way of saying that, that, we're, that we're losing the war there. And, and, and it's kind of ironic, Buck, because it's like we win every single military engagement on the ground but are at risk for losing the war. And I think in large part because we have been implementing for the past almost seven or eight years in Afghanistan, a counterinsurgency strategy that was just not effective. It was effective in Iraq, but it's definitely not effective, not effective in Afghanistan. And just to give you, just to give you a sense of, of what that means in 2006, my unit was charged with closing with and destroying the enemy in Eastern Afghanistan. And that is the mission of the infantry. And that's what we're trained to do best. 
And that's what we did. So my one platoon killed 350 enemy fighters, and we didn't kill one civilian the entire time that we were there. And so the basic premise behind the counterterror strategy is it killed the enemy, thereby securing the populace. So what we did was we killed as many enemies as we could, and we separated them from civilians, and civilians trusted in us, Afghan civilians trusted in us, and our ability to be able to keep them safe. So they, they told us things. They allowed us uh, to help them build their government, train their police, train their military. And when we left there, so we were there for 485 days, which is insane because it's the longest combat deployment in global war and, his, uh, global war and terror history. But I could have freaking voted in Afghanistan if I wanted to legally, I think. But by the time the war was over, we were getting intel, signal, signal, signals intelligence from Pakistan, from the Taliban and other uh, terrorist groups in and around the area saying, that we can no longer commit our sons to this fight because the, the U.S. troops are killing them in far too great a numbers. And then we built the Margot Combat Outpost at the end of 2007. We left in, in June of 2007. The next unit came in. The next division commander came in. Uh, Obama was president a short time later, and they just implemented a counterinsurgency strategy, which basically meant building small combat outposts all along uh, the, uh, the the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, and we lost control of the fight because we spread our forces too thin. And it went from a, a kinetic fight and when we were trying to kill the enemy to a largely static fight uh, and active defense, basically, with platoon-sized combat outposts all over the border. And that's when you started hearing year after year, right, Buck? It was like year after year there was an, an American infantry platoon or something getting overrun on the border of Afghanistan. Well, that's because we had our forces spread out all over the place with one platoon here, one platoon there, with really not enough offensive combat power to patrol the border at all. Well, that's what I, I want to ask you about, Sean, because as you said, your former brigade commander is now commander of all U.S. forces in Afghanistan, and he's telling the Senate Armed Services Committee that they just don't have enough, uh, they just don't have enough soldiers. We just don't have enough U.S. military in place to get this fight where it needs to be. Uh, what what do you I mean what do you think about that I mean if we were to recommit uh, I don't know he says a few thousand my guess is that it's going to be a few thousand for the next six months and that'll be a few thousand more after that and very quickly people start yeah. to get nervous as to whether we're just ramping up again uh, why didn't this work the last time I think a lot of Americans would want to know that we had a hundred thousand in country were they not there long enough or is are there just structural problems with Afghanistan? as a country, as a landmass, as a place where you've got warring factions stretching back for centuries, obviously all the stuff about how it's the graveyard of empires and, you know, they, right. we have all the clocks, but the Taliban has all the time, all that's still being true. Why isn't this thing over yet? Well, so you're, so let me address the, the second part of what you said about how we had like 100 plus thousand troops there and why wasn't that working? Well, the basic pre premise of counterinsurgency is to flood a region with, with troops. And you've got, you've got a nation and a host nation. And in this case, we were, we, were, we were the nation coming in and training the host nation to extend the reach of the government and their army and train their police so that they can secure their people. But the basic premise of, of that strategy is based on a nation's ability to host another, right? And so to your point of, of the geographic challenges that Afghanistan poses, Afghanistan can barely be considered a nation let alone one that is effective enough to host another one. And so when the basic premise of counterinsurgency is flawed, how can we, how can we expect 
our troops on the ground to be successful implementing that strategy. So, for example, we had 100,000 troops spread out all over Afghanistan, but they weren't really doing anything but trying to win the hearts and minds. And that in and of itself is not enough, like especially in Afghanistan, where, where, where strength above all other things is valued. So in Afghanistan in 2006, we had one infantry brigade combat team on the border in all of RC East. And so in an area 10 times the size of Texas, we had 3,800 troops. But our sole purpose in life was to hunt down the enemy and kill them. And so, and we had the same thing in RC South, and we had the same thing in RC North and RC and RC West. So the point is, to me, it's less important about how many soldiers are in country and, and much far more important as to what their mission is going to be. So right now we have about 8,600 soldiers um, in Afghanistan. And I think a few thousand more, I think what General Nicholson is thinking is would really give him the ability to not only get after and train the enemy, or get after and kill the enemy, which is of the utmost importance of securing the populace, really. And I say it again, there's no better way to secure the civilians in Afghanistan or in any war than by killing the enemy that are trying to kill them number one. Uh, but number two, it, like at this point in time in the war, we've got to have enough strength on the ground and the right people on the ground uh, to really serve as, as ambassadors with a gun. We've got to be able to train their police. We've got to be able to train their government. Right now, they're so corrupt. And I mean, right now, the Afghan National Army, I'll tell you right now, they're, they're phenomenal, Buck. They're courageous. Uh, fighting side by side with them in the trenches was great. But right now, they basically have a 500,000 person of, uh, of uh, barely, they're not even considered an army. Because why? They can't feed him, they can't get him water, and they can't pay them. Why? Because the government is so corrupt, they take it all for themselves. So we need, we need competent Americans in those positions acting as liaisons, helping them uh, with their supply, helping them with their pay, helping them to feed and get water to their soldiers in the field so that they can function eventually when we leave. But I mean, if, I think at the end of the day, Buck, we're going to be in that country if, if we're committed to this fight like we should be. And believe me, this, this pains me more than anybody else because I fought and bled there and lost soldiers there. But we're going to be in, in Afghanistan if we do this right for 50 years oh man Uh, well let me let me ask you sean and and we've got a couple more minutes here so you can take your time but i won't i won't hit you with uh many more questions after this one uh if you were still in and you were being told that you had to take your guys back over there at this point let's say you were part of a surge of you know an additional ten thousand u.s military personnel in new afghanistan to stabilize the situation and hopefully let the afghan government uh, get its act together and get the job done with security and, and defeating the Taliban. How would you feel about that? Well, <laughs> well, I wouldn't feel good. I mean, I, I didn't, I mean, so I was real motivated when I went. Into the- I, I'm, I meant about the mission more than I'm sorry. I mean, you know, yeah. would you be, you know, it's a combat deployment. I understand that. But I, I just mean in terms of the mission set, would you feel like it's doable? Well, yeah. If, 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 if General Nicholson looked me in the eye and said, Sean, I'm going to send you back over there and I'm going to give you an infantry company and this is what your mission is going to be. And we're going to keep all these D.C. politicians, we're going to keep their hands off the war and allow you as a battlefield commander to make the calls that you think are right in the field. Get after it. I say, hell yeah, send me now. I mean, because, because I really do think the war was winnable. I'm telling you right now, and if you interviewed General Nicholson, he'd tell you the same thing. In 2007... We had the Afghanistan war won at the end and, and, and somewhere along the way, 
between 2007, 2008, 2009, we lost it. But in 07, we had the initiative. We were implementing the right. Uh, we were implementing the right strategy. It was a hard fight, man, and I mean it. Like World War II infantry style fighting, but we were winning. And and if I had to go back over there, knowing that that was the strategy. Uh, I would do it all again in a second, especially knowing, I mean, knowing the risk and everything else. And I think, and I think, I just spoke to a bunch of young true believer cadets up in northern Pennsylvania that were going into the army. I think they would all do it too. And I think, you know, you know how I feel about this, Buck. But we are so lucky to live in this country where young cadets like that raise the right hand, volunteer to serve in a time of war. Um, but we're in good hands. It's just all a question of whether or not they have the right mission set going over there. If we do, we'll win all day. Sean Parnell is a former uh, U.S. Army Airborne Ranger. He's the author of a fantastic book, New York Times bestseller, Outlaw Platoon, Heroes, Renegades, Infidels, and the Brotherhood of War in Afghanistan. He is a fantastic guy and got great stories, so you want to check out his book. Sean, my friend, thanks for joining us, and uh, we we will uh, look forward to you coming back soon. Definitely. I love you. Shield time, my man. Shield time, my man. Love you too, brother. Talk to you soon. All right, phones are open, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Freedom Hut Team Buck. I just want to let you know that some of you have been asking me about this since we started the show a few weeks ago. And uh, yes, you can download the entirety of the show, of course, for free. And the best thing you can do, if you don't mind, I would love it if you would, is subscribe, and you could subscribe on iTunes now. So those of you who like to listen to your podcast on iTunes, you can just set up a subscribe feature there, and you will get the entirety of Buck Sexton with America now. So uh, please do check it out. Also, of course, on the iHeart app, you can uh, you can listen to it live there and also play on demand. Um, but we are on iTunes as well now, so you've got multiple ways to listen to the show in its entirety. If you're listening to just part of it, or if you just want to go back and hear my man Sean, uh, Sean Parnell, uh, patriot, door kicker, and all-around great guy, uh, if you want to hear what he had to say about Afghanistan, you only caught part of it, go on iTunes or iHeart, download the podcast, and uh, on iTunes, I know you can subscribe, which means you'll get it all the time. Just type in Buck Sexton into the search field, and bam, you're there. Lori in New Jersey. My first caller, the wonderful Lori. Good to hear from you. Yo, Buck. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Can I also, I mean, I'm going to tell everybody, but I hope this is okay. You're a lawyer, so it's cool that you know things about the law. I, I, do, I am a lawyer, and yeah. as a result thereof, I do know some things about the law. Yeah, yeah I know. That's cool. But I know you want to, you want to talk about bathrooms and such, so tell me what's going on. Well, I do, but can, but can I just take a moment, because I listened to Sean Parnell. What a great guy. He's amazing, by the way. He's he's uh, one, he's the rare American. He, he, he's the rare guy who you want him. You know, he, he's a big teddy bear and a great guy when you're around him. He's just uh, really nice and humble and cool. But also, right. if you if you could put somebody in your foxhole or at your side in a nasty bar fight, right. Sean, Sean Parnell will be very high on that list. I promise you. Hey, Buck, is he one of the soft rep guys by any chance? I don't think he is with soft rep, but they they know and respect Sean. There's there's a, there's a collegial right. relationship there, as I understand it. Yeah. Uh, just. Just so you know, I'm a member there too. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. Well, Brandon Webb, who oh, oh. who's the founder of Soft Rep, who's a former Navy yeah. SEAL sniper, is is a very good yeah. friend of mine. I mean, he's here in New York. We hang out all the time, and uh, you know, SoftRep.com does great stuff. And Brandon yeah. and some of his writers, including some of his writers who are former Spec Ops guys themselves, they'll be joining the yeah. show going forward for sure. Excellent. Glad to hear it. That is the another area of keen interest on my part. 
but you're right. I did call tonight about transgender bathrooms, and and this is what I would this is what I would like to say. The left for I mean decades now has has been hammering about the importance of science. They 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 wish to defer to science at every turn, so long as it supports their point of view. <clears throat> now we have a point a, a situation where science has decidedly said for many, many years that, that a person's brain is really not very developed until a certain age. Now, there was a story in the news last, just last week of a nine-year-old born a girl who is now being encouraged to, to identify as a boy by her own mother or his own. I don't even know the right terminology, and I'm not trying to be insensitive or... Insult. Yeah, I resent. By the way, I resent Lori. What I think you're stumbling into right here, because I stumble into it too. Which is, you know, I just I'm not using a pronoun to make some political statement. I'm just used to saying he for no. males and she for females. I'm, I'm not trying to make anyone feel right. bad. It's not supposed to be offensive. No. It's just a, rec- a recognition of what I think is reality. Well, and and a genuine a genuine confusion. Yeah, honestly, uh, yeah, I don't know how to how to even discuss. The topic. Of course. Well, well, the left is figuring it out as they go along, by the way. You can run afoul of what was just decided as leftist orthodoxy on transgender rights, you know, last week. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to offend anybody. This is something that I think is lost on the other side, or or they just uh, prefer it to be lost. Uh, We we don't... uh, I actually, even though I am a a Bible-believing Christian... What they want to do with their bodies and their identities, fine. I don't care. I genuinely do not care. But it's become a. But Laura, you know, you're a lawyer. It's become a legal issue, and now, you know, Uh, know. how far are we from people who are going to sue? Uh, sue their workplace oh. because they say, well, I should yeah. be able to use the other bathroom, and I want accommodations made, and you know, well, they, they, they right. it becomes so, an issue. I know. So this actually brings me to my point about the school thing. I, I don't understand how it is that we can make pronouncements about gender identity before a human being has reached maturity in terms of um, sex. I mean, a nine-year-old, to use the case from last week, has not undergone the physical changes that occur uh, to make, to, to, um, shall we say, push someone in one direction or the other. When I was nine, I was a complete tomboy. Yeah, I, I, I think that parent, parents who are encouraging their nine-year-olds to go down this path uh, seems highly, highly unwise and, and suspect to me. So here's what I would I would just say this because I hear the music in the background. I don't. I think it is extremely unwise, and the left should really consider where they're coming from. If you're going to mandate a universal, people can do whatever they want to do before the age of actual consent or majority. Huh. You know, these, these little kids don't know, really. All right. Lori, and, and the, Lori the lawyer from NJ, we got to bounce here. But, Lori, thank you for calling in, and I hear you. Got it. Um, and, uh, everybody, we're going to be back right after the break. Buck is back. Hey, everybody, Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. We've talked about fake news here before, and I've even tried to make a distinction between fake news and false news, although I think the one 
can often be close to and perhaps even bleed over into the other. Uh, but this is a story that was getting attention the last couple of days, and I've been looking into it, and I just have to say, it 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 smells a little funky to me. A little, little bit, a little bit, a little funky. Uh, something a little wrong here. I want to know, what is that funky smell uh, that is coming from these town halls? Because uh, this is what we're hearing, and this is what USA Today yesterday, oh no, I'm sorry, today, a few hours ago was reporting on these town halls where Republicans in GOP-dominant and very red states have people showing up at their town halls and, oh wow, what a shock, what a surprise. They're showing up at these town halls and making accusations, very strong ones, and allegations about Russia and Trump. Now, let's just take a step back for a moment. Let's put on our, our, our thinking caps, our analyst hats for a minute here. The kind of people that show up to a town hall to speak to their representative, uh, do we think in a very red state? So, for example, Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. Um, I know there are parts of Kentucky that are blue, but you know, Mitch McConnell, who is showing up at a Mitch McConnell uh, at a Mitch McConnell town hall. Well, we'll put a put a pin in the McConnell question for a second because we'll get to that. We actually have audio of that one. But here's what USA Today is saying about other town halls. As it, as it writes here, from Montana to Virginia, there are several incidences of voters pressing lawmakers on Russia in addition to hot topics such as Obamacare and immigration restrictions. Uh Representative Martha McSally of Arizona was recently asked to support a formal congressional investigation into Trump's business interests, namely in Russia. Representative Tom Reed, whose uh, district is the southwest tip of New York State, had a number of constituents during his town hall at a senior center uh, bring up Russia. And one in the crowd yelled, what are you covering up? And Russia, as the woman called the issue embarrassing for the nation. Now, these individuals, I have to say, uh, this strikes me as not fake news or false news, but perhaps you could call it false flag news. I don't believe that these people showing up at town halls and berating their elected representative um, are Republicans. And I know Trump tweeted out that these are Democrat activists. Uh, who have infiltrated... Look, they're allowed to go to the town hall, right? I'm I'm not saying that they've done anything wrong in that respect. Um, Here, here's what he says. This is Trump the day before... uh, This is Trump yesterday tweeted out, the so-called angry crowds in home districts of some Republicans are actually, in numerous cases, planned out by liberal activists. Sad! Exclamation point. Now, without Trump even putting that tweet out there, Uh, I have to say, I find this to be a much more likely situation than Republicans who are uh, showing up. Because remember, people hate Congress, but they tend to like their representative. This is a this is a very interesting dichotomy. This is a separation between perceptions of D.C. and the swamp and the beltway. And, you know, Bob who represents your district, you know, you you like Bob or if you voted for Bob or, or Sally or whomever, right. I'm just picking random names here. Um, But 
people like their representative, or in some cases, or many cases, I would guess, uh, their senator, but they're going to show up and press on the... That's who Who is showing up at a town hall and making sure that the press is aware of this, too, keep that in mind, and pushing the issue of Trump ties to Russia? I just... I can't tell you that it's not true, and I, I'm just telling you that to me it rings false. It strikes me as unlikely that you. And it's very interesting. USA Today, huge circulation uh, newspaper, and others going with this story of Republicans under heat as they go home. I don't buy it that a lot of Republicans are putting heat on their representatives for the Russia Trump connect. I just don't buy it. And it's funny because I know Trump tweeted this out, and so it sounds like I'm I'm taking marching orders from this in the White House. But I but I really don't buy it. I'm telling you, it just uh, smell like I said, it smells funky to me. You think about this situation, you're going to show up, and you're going to, you know, what what are you really going to get out of yelling at uh, who was the uh, at Representative Tom Reed or Martha McSally about congressional investigations into Trump and Russia? Uh, I, I think these are Democrats, whether they're activists or not. And I can't say that all of them. I know there are some Republicans who are very, you know, John McCain is very upset about Trump's ties to Russia. Um, I find I find John McCain to be uh, politically highly unhelpful. Um, and, and, I, and I wish he would stop. And I think that there's no small part of his political criticism of the Trump administration that is driven by his own ego. Yeah, I think that that's a real thing. That factors into all of this. That's just my perception of it. I could be wrong. But then you get the Mitch McConnell town hall. And this woman, uh, Rose Perkins is her name. She shows up to this town hall and goes off on uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And she then later on, of course, finds her way onto CNN, onto a, uh, onto a prominent CNN daytime show. Um, but I want to play the exchange for you because this this is a little different than what we've heard about this murky. Oh, there's this movement of people showing up and they're just talking about Russia. And yeah, it's all just what a surprise that people are showing up at, Rep- at Republican representatives across the country. In a, well, in a few cases, not in that many to talk about Russia. Hmm. Uh, this is a little different. Let's play the Rose Perkins audio at this McConnell town hall. Go, please. You have to acknowledge that we got too damn many people on food stamps in Kentucky. And last I heard, we're the leader, and that is not where we want to be the leader. And the last I heard, these coal jobs are not coming back, and now these people have the insurance they need because they're poor. And they work those coal mines, and they're sick. The veterans are sick. The veterans are broken down. They're not getting what they need. Now, I think she she seems to me to be in earnest here. I don't know why it falls on Mitch McConnell that there's uh, food st- that food stamp usage in Kentucky is is at very is at a very high level. I think she said it's the leader. I don't know if that's true or not. I do know that the poorest per capita county in the entirety of the United States is Harlan County, Kentucky, which I believe is eastern Kentucky. Uh, so there is that. You often hear about uh, urban uh, urban poverty and decay, but the the poorest the poorest single county in the entire United States per capita is in eastern Kentucky. And by the way, it is uh, predominantly wh- uh, white. 
So, you know, this is often oftentimes we talk about or the discussion around poverty is all is tied into discussion around uh, people's ethnic background and demographics. And it's broken down that way. Uh, But there are plenty of very poor and uh, very desperate white people in rural America uh, that anyway, they they tend not to get the same kind of. attention as urban decay in, in, in cities where you have higher proportions of minorities um, for any number of reasons, I think in part because there's just more media in cities and there's more concentration of people. But anyway, uh, so she's she's pretty fired up at Mitch McConnell. I, I don't know how much of that's really fair in, in, the, in the sense that Mitch McConnell, you know, what, what's first of all, he's been he's been in the majority for a few weeks and I'm not some big Mitch McConnell super fan. Don't get me wrong. But he's been in the majority for a few weeks, and he's managed to shepherd through the confirmation process all but one of Trump's cabinet appointees. So I think you got to give him some credit on that. Uh, there's been some discipline in the Senate to get that through. We'll see what they do with everything else. But, of course, this woman, here's why she gets national-level attention and why she's on CNN earlier today. And because any dissatisfaction with the Republicans— from the constituent, the, the perception that there is a grassroots dissatisfaction with Republicans is now the story. It's almost like they all they got together a bunch of major newspapers across the country and they're like, hey, what have we got there? It's going to hurt the hurt the GOP. Oh, yeah. Let's go with that whole grassroots disaffection with the GOP. Um, so I'm not saying that's not there. I'm just saying be cautious. False flag news can also be a very real thing. Um, you know, I believe there was a a time when someone showed up at a Hillary event and yelled, iron my shirt at Hillary. And people said, oh, these these vile Republicans, uh, they're so they're so gross. And it turns out they're both registered Democrats. And I think they were doing it as, as a gag for, of all things, a radio show. We do a very different kind of show here than all the other. Shows. Whoa, hey, Bob. I mean, there's a lot of that. In Radio Land, I don't, I don't really do that here. Sometimes we'll have fun with stuff like, not like that. We don't do shock jock, but you know, I'll do little weird voices and things to keep it spicy, to keep it, keep it flavorful in the Freedom Hunt. Um, but anyway, I, I can understand that there is dissatisfaction with the GOP. I understand there's dissatisfaction with the GOP, but just I would, I caution you all as you read these news stories, as you see the way that this is being lined up. To make sure you don't think that or you don't just take at face value these claims that, oh, there's this grassroots uprising against these uh, Republicans at their own town halls in their districts or in their home states. Maybe a little bit of it. And, and I, the real dissatisfaction for me, the, the fact that they put this woman uh, or this woman rather received all this attention. I think she's she sounded to me like she's in earnest. That didn't sound you know, she wasn't saying, oh, you know, Russia gave Trump the election. And until there's a congressional inquiry, you know, I can just see these people reading off the talking points they printed from, you know, Slate dot com or uh, or talking points memo or one of those sites. Uh, but she seemed in earnest to me. The food stamps in Kentucky, I don't really see how Mitch McConnell is supposed to have changed that in, the, in a few weeks. But. They are moving kind of slowly on some major agenda items, and we've seen a little bit of backpedaling. And I do think we all have to be on, uh, maybe you could call it like spine watch. You have to see if the Republicans start to waver just because they're losing their will to get it done. 
And, and you, you'll get a you'll get a sense of this beforehand. This is not going to come out of out of the blue. You, you'll start to see. Well, you know, I mean, Obamacare actually has some good things, and maybe we should work more with the insurance companies, and we're going to tinker around the edges. And a lot of us are going to say, "Oh no, no, no! You said repeal, and you said replace." And they'll say, "Okay, okay, sure. We're going to go back. We're going to go back into session and take care of this. And don't worry. And we're your elected representatives, and we're the GOP. We'll get this done." And but you know, I just think the tax reform, the deficit's twenty trillion dollars, and we've got some big businesses that are, you know, concerned about what's going to. Oh no! But 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 you know, we're gonna ha- you're gonna have to keep an eye on this. You're gonna have to watch pretty closely because I I think that. There are plenty of Republicans that realized that, well, first of all, they benefited from this Trump wave, even if they hated Trump, which is pretty funny when you think about it. And they know what the they know what the base wants. They know what grassroots Republicans. I don't even like this term grassroots Republican activists. We don't do activists. We just have people that care about things and show up sometimes to talk about them. But, you know, they all have day jobs um, for the most part. So. I, I, they know what the GOP base has wanted for a long time, for years now, stretching back to the rise of the Tea Party. And although we don't talk about deficits and we don't talk about government spending quite as much. Trump talked about it today a little bit. He said, we're going to spend less. We're going to have a a fiduciary duty to the American taxpayer as the federal government. And I like that. He's, he's hitting the right notes there. Um, but the rank and file of the elected members of Congress for the Republican Party have known for a while what to say on most of these issues, and they haven't been in a position to do it. And we have to keep a very close eye on this because I, I wonder if they really want to do it, if they have the stomach for what they've been promising to do all along here. I think, here's a little prediction for you, you will see... The GOP Congress, GOP uh, Majority Congress waiver and backtrack on a core, on a, on a key issue before you'll see Trump do it. I think they're going to be the ones who break first. And then all hell is going to break loose. <laughs> all right. All right, team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. All right, team, welcome back into the Freedom Hut. Great to have you with me. Uh, if you are listening and you haven't already, please go on iTunes or on iHeart's app. And on iTunes, you can subscribe. Uh, that means that you'll be downloading the show every time we do a show, which is great. Uh, so just type in Buck Sexton in the search field on iTunes or on iHeart uh, Media app, or iHeart Radio app, rather. Um, and uh, you can subscribe on iTunes, which is a cool feature. And please do. Gene in Louisiana, you're you're on the Buck Sexton show. Welcome, Gene. Hey, how are you, Buck? I'm good. Good. I just, uh, you know, I, first I want to start off with telling you that I love listening to your show for the most part. That uh, you don't talk like a staunch Republican, and uh, I am not a Republican or a staunch Republican in any way. Um, on the other hand, I'm not Democrat either. I vote independent. Um, you're a free thinker, but you listen to this show, which means you have excellent taste in radio, sir. That's right. Thank you very much. And I appreciate it. Anyway, I'm a, uh, I'm a retired army ranger. I was one of the last ones out of Vietnam and I was the first boots on the ground in the Panama campaign. And, and so I've been around and a lot of people don't ever talk about the fact that in Panama, the Panama campaign actually kind of started a whole lot. If you research it, it's kind of a lot of the background of what has come through all the way up till today. 
How so? As far as, well, the, um, if, if you follow the trend from when we went into Panama and so on and so forth, that started a lot of the Middle East uh, and everything followed through um, from there all the way up till the present as far as the uh, uh, stuff that's going on in the Middle East, the stuff that was going on in Desert Storm and all these other things. Anyway, that's not why I'm calling. I'm calling to tell you that uh, my um, I vote independent, and and uh, my wife is a staunch uh, Democrat. She she's very much a Democrat, um, but I do lean Republican on most of what I, I I think about. But I don't like anybody telling me how to vote. I don't want anybody telling me what to think. Choose a side. This that I. Don't put me there. I want to be able to make my own decisions. I hear you. I may agree. Yes, sir. Not agree there. So anyway, my wife, being a Democrat, she absolutely loves Hillary. She knows the Hillary story. She has followed Hillary all the way from college. We've only got about a minute, Gene, just so you know, but go ahead. Oh, okay. Anyway, so she is very big on on, uh, following, following Hillary, but she became... I have, but she hated when Trump won, and I tried and have been explaining to her the things that are going on, what's going on with Trump and his agenda and this and that. And I have actually got her to agree with me and start to lean my direction, even though she loves Hillary. She does see the fact that we do need to make some changes in this country. We do need to back the president, whether you like it or not. We gotta follow America and back America. All right, I hear you, Gene. You gotta get her to listen to this show too. That's gonna help. I promise. Thank you for your service, sir, and thank you for your call. Um, and team, if you're listening, please do download the podcast on iHeart or iTunes. We're on iTunes now. Till tomorrow night, my friends. Shields high.